Severe acute respiratory distress syndrome affects up to 15% of patients admitted to adult intensive care units around the world and more than one quarter of them will die. Widely recognised as an illness conceived by the intensive care specialty, much remains to be discovered about its pathogenesis and its management. Associate Professor David Tuxen is the Senior Intensivist at the Alfred Intensive Care Unit in Melbourne, Australia, after being its director for over 25 years. He is a past president of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society and a past chair of the Intensive Care Foundation, and he has research interests in asthma, mechanical ventilation and acute lung injury. I can think of no better person to welcome to our podcast to discuss aspects of mechanical ventilation in patients with ARDS. David, it seems that every time we open a journal there's a new ventilation strategy with a four-letter acronym, and I'm wondering if there's a best mode for use in, uh, in ARDS. Look, there's a lot of ventilator modes available now, and really... Um, uh, all of them are suitable, provided that you uh, take um, put the, uh, the principles required for ARDS into practice. But I believe that um, unlike modes where volume control is important, for example, critical CO2 regulation in head injury, um, pressure control modes are much more suitable for ARDS because the whole focus now is not on... Um, gas exchange, but on protecting the lung from ventilator-induced injury. So I would put uh, the um, primary mode, best mode, um, as um, a SIMV pressure-controlled mode, transiting to um, a spontaneous breathing mode with pressure support, uh, as the patient improves. However, um, there's nothing wrong with uh, bi-level ventilation and some units even prefer um, uh, APRV or pressure release ventilation, which are all similar um, forms of the same thing where the pressure in the lung cycles between the minimum and maximum. And it's the minimum and maximum pressures that are the key to the safety, or one of the keys to safety in ARDS. Are there theoretical advantages for any of these modes in ARDS? Well, the theoretical advantage of pressure mode is that um, it makes sure that uh, no matter what happens to the patient's intrinsic lung compliance, um, that the safety pressure limits that you set, that's the safe minimum and safe, or the, sorry, the desired minimum and maximum pressure are maintained, even if the volume delivered varies. Whereas if you're in a volume control mode, then if the patient's compliance changes for whatever reason, then you can easily find that the pressure that results from the volume being delivered um, is in a zone that could cause lung injury. There's been a lot of speculation for many years on, on the ability to titrate the best PEEP um, for a patient, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on, on attaining that, that value. Well, the um, currently most widely accepted motive or, or ventilatory strategy is the protective lung strategy, and that means um, that the um, maximum pressure should be less than 30, that's the, that's the alveolar pressure or plateau airway pressure, 
and the minimum pressure should be sufficiently high to stop um, alveolar collapse and re-expansion with each breath in the sort of intermediate lung zone on the CT. And whereas we used to regard the maximum pressure as peak pressure as 15, uh, now it's um, commonly regarded as a minimum. So most people will target high levels of PEEP, somewhere between 15 and 17 and a half, to prevent or reduce that uh, collapse re-expansion injury. So safe ventilation is uh, stopping over-expansion or overstretching of the um, least dependent lung regions by keeping the maximum pressure low and it is uh, prevention of collapse and re-expansion injury by keeping the minimum pressure um, at around 15 uh, plus or minus two and a half. So that was regarded as optimal PEEP and there's a number of scales that have been used to um, uh, set that level. Uh, the most widely known is the ARDS-NET scale, and that's where the severity of lung injury is detected by oxygenation, and the higher inspired oxygen you need, the higher PEEP you deliver. However, we are now moving into a new era of ARDS ventilation, which um, is the safe lung strategy, but also includes the open lung strategy, because that strategy um, protects against overexpansion and collapse re-expansion, but there's still a large area of the lung which can be as much, uh, can be as often about a quarter of the lung volume and up to over 50% of the lung volume, which remains collapsed throughout tidal ventilation with the protective lung strategy. And there's been a lot of interest in expanding, and that is known to be an unhealthy zone, um, which is never adequately aerated, never adequately drained, uh, and is at risk of microabscess formation and cyst formation, and hence can be still contributing to um, cytokine production, which goes on and causes other organ injury around the body. So um, there's interest in expanding that lung region and making it healthier, and hopefully that will improve not only the health of the lung, but the health of the patient and their survival. And there's a number of different ways of doing that. And the ideal PEEP level, uh, to get back to your original question, then becomes the um, PEEP level that will maintain the expansion of that dependent lung zone after, after it has been opened up. That very neatly brings us to FARLAP and the step-up manoeuvre and uh, recruitment manoeuvres in general. Um, can you yep. tell us about the FARLAP trial and what you're aiming to, to demonstrate from that? Yes, I'll just give you a tiny bit of background before I get to that. And that is there's probably three main methods that have been used to uh, expand or open that dependent uh, lung zone. One is prone ventilation. Um, which redistributes the collapse to another lung region, but is effective at opening that dependent uh, lung region. And unfortunately, in large trials, it hasn't been shown to um, improve survival. Um, although a lot of us still feel it does do some good in the more severely injured patients. Uh, the second is partial liquid ventilation, which looked very promising, but is now uh, really not taken off at all. Uh, and I won't talk about it anymore. And the last, of course, is 
what you've just asked me about, which is lung recruitment using a transient application of much higher airway pressures so that that lung can expand. Now, the principle of the recruitment manoeuvre is that um, this dependent lung region will not be opened by a high amount of PEEP, say PEEP in the range of 15 to 20, but once it has been opened by much higher pressures um, in the range of 40 to 60, uh, then um, it will stay open when the pressure comes back down to a, a peak pressure somewhere in the range of 15 to 20. So um, the, the peak can't open it, but after it's been opened by a high pressure, the peak will hold it open. That is then the optimal peak, the peak that holds it open. So the manoeuvre that was first proposed was just a static manoeuvre of around 60 centimetres of water per 60 seconds. And that was quite effective at recruiting the lung, but it wasn't very patient-friendly. Um, there was no breathing during that 60 seconds, um, which put the CO2 up a little bit, uh, and which um, was uncomfortable for the patients and caused a lot of hypotension. And so uh, it, it wasn't widely accepted because it wasn't well tolerated. So it was then watered down to a 40, 40 manoeuvre, that's 40 centimetres of water for 40 seconds, which was much better tolerated. But there was then two major trials done on it, which was um, uh, alveoli and loves, and um, they, they were ineffective. It, it showed um, no uh, benefit. So the 40-40 manoeuvre, although better tolerated, didn't work. Now, those trials had their faults, so... Um, but nevertheless, they didn't show a positive outcome. So um, we uh, designed what we call a staircase manoeuvre. So first of all, it's a dynamic manoeuvre. So whenever we go up on peak, we add pressure control on top of it so that if we're on, say, 40 centimetres um, of peak, then, which is our target, we have 15 of pressure control on top of it. So the alveolar pressures... Um, are up to around 55 centimetres of water. And that has three advantages. Um, firstly, the alveolar pressure is much higher. Uh, secondly, um, because it's not static, it's cycling between 55 and 40. The, um, it's much better tolerated because there's breathing happening and there's venous return happening. And, um, and so the circulation is less depressed. And thirdly, it seems to be more effective both because we can sustain, both because there's higher pressures and we can sustain them for longer and the cycling seems to have an, its own benefit as well. So that end point seems to be most effective. So what's the staircase? The staircase says you don't go straight up to 40 centimetres of peak plus 15. You want to make sure it's being tolerated on the way up, make sure you don't get too much circulatory depression. So we take two steps on the way up, two minutes at 20 at peak plus 15, two minutes at 30 at peak plus 15 pressure control, and then two minutes in the target zone, which is 40 at peak plus 15 at pressure control. And that's what we believe recruits most patients. Then we have a staircase down along a different set of stairs because we're trying to then determine optimal peak on the way down. So we go down to 25 of peak, 22, 20, 17, 15, all with the 15 of pressure control on top. And we're looking for the first point at which the maximum saturation starts to come down. That indicates to us that the lungs are starting to collapse. And then once we've found that collapse point, let's say it's at 
17.5 centimetres of peep. We then go back up to 40 for two minutes and then come back down to the peep level above the desaturation point, which was 17, so that um, we are not... We're setting the peep just above the point of desaturation, not at the point of desaturation or of, of first um, loss of lung recruitment. With regards to your experience with this sort of manoeuvre so far, is there anything in terms of safety that uh, clinicians need to be aware of? Yeah, look, first of all, it is um, complex and uh, it, it takes a while. So it takes, you know, probably 20 minutes to do. So, but usually you can do your other activities around the patient while you're doing it. But um, the, the first thing, you have to stabilise the person in pressure control, and we turn down the um, saturation, turn down the FI2 till the saturation's in the low 90s. That way we can discriminate saturation chains, because obviously if they're on 100% oxygen um, and the PO2 is, is uh, 100 uh, the saturation's 99, then the PO2 might go up to 200, but the saturation won't change, so you can't tell it, and same when it comes down. So we want the saturation to start in the low 90s. Second thing is, because it is a high pressure in the chest, it does squash the heart and can drop the blood pressure, you have to make sure that the patient is fully resuscitated before you do it. In other words, you don't do it when they first arrive and you haven't got their circulation stabilised and haven't got them to their optimal fluid balance. And thirdly, we exclude patients who've had a pneumothorax or got a hole in their lung or who might get a hole in their lung, um, for example, with a necrotizing pneumonia or staph pneumonia, where we suspect uh, necrosis is happening, or patients with high intracranial pressure or intracranial pressure risk. So they're, the, they're our exclusions. We need them resuscitated. Now, when you do the manoeuvre, um, when you go up to PEEP, two-thirds of patients have a very gratifying increase in saturation at their maximum PEEP. But one-third of patients, their saturation goes down. And people used to think that meant the manoeuvre wasn't working, as you would. But actually, we now know that even though the saturation goes down at highest pressures, those patients, in fact, usually have had lung recruitment, but you don't see the improvement in saturation because the um, circulatory depressant effect causes a reduction in venous saturation going through a shunt, which then doesn't, which tends to reduce arterial saturation. So the improvement in um, in lung shunt or the, the improvement due to lung recruitment can't manifest itself, well, can't show a response in the arterial saturation until the peep comes down. It sounds complicated and I hope, it's, I hope I've made it clear. But those patients' saturation is reduced. When the peep comes down and their circulation restores itself, it's then that they show their improvement in saturation. So one, two-thirds of patients show their um, recruitment response at the highest level of PEEP and one-third of patients sh don't show their recruitment response until the first or second step down um, of the PEEP when it returns down to 25 or 22 centimetres of water. The, um, the concept of permissive hypercapnia is quite well established in ARDS, uh, sorry, in ARDS management now. The, the limits of this are, are probably not as well accepted. I'm just wondering how, how you see that. Um, you know, often you get to the point where the pH is dropping, the CO2 is going high, higher and higher, 
and there's concern about the, you know, how far we can push this. Is there any evidence on how far we can do that, and uh, particularly with relationship to the um, uh, to the pH and uh, the administration of bicarb? Yes. Look, um, the permissive hypercapnic effect works both directly and indirectly, and I'll discuss the indirect a bit first. So when you've done your recruitment manoeuvre, um, you then want to, you might finish up on 17 plus 15, which puts you over the upper pressure limit of 30. So we turn down the pressure support and so that to ensure the airway pressures are under 30. In other words, the high peak comes with a lower tidal volume and that tends to cause hypercapnia. In other words, and we say that's okay, we don't mind hypercapnia. The other two trials that were negative, both when they put higher peak, kept the same tidal volume and treatment and control group, therefore had a higher um, plateau pressure, potentially reducing the benefit of higher peak or recruitment by having a higher plateau pressure. So by using a lower, um, a lower plateau pressure and a lower tidal volume, we tend to get hypercapnia as a result. So um, the allowing that hypercapnia not resisting it um, by the use of lower tidal volumes is the first zone of benefit from, from hypercapnia. The second is now there's increasing evidence from a number of um, animal model studies and a little bit of limited human data that shows that um, hypercapnia may have a protective effect in humans, a direct um, benefit um, by its anti-inflammatory effects. So um, we are targeting that. Uh, in in Farlap, although that is uh, much more or much less proven, if you like. Um, does it matter? Um, we want the uh, CO2 uh, in in the high 40s to uh, up to 60, and we don't mind if it's uh, 70 or 80, and we're quite comfortable with a pH that's well under uh, 7.35, down as low as 7.2. Um, are there benefits from going lower or higher? We don't know. Are there problems with um, having a pH that low? Um, we don't think so. We haven't seen circulatory depression due to those high pHs, and we don't feel the need to resist it with um, the low pHs with bicarbonate. We know that the intracellular pH corrects itself, and that's really where the pH is important. So. Um, we're not fussed by those things. If the CO2 goes, does go excessively high or the pH excessively low, then we will increase the respiratory rate to offset that change, but we're really not worried about it. Having said that, um, most patients in our preliminary trials, um, because they had good lung recruitment, they did have an improvement in gas exchange, and most of them didn't have um, excessively high CO2s or low pHs. A recent, um, a new concept was raised at a recent um, scientific meeting, that of permissive hypoxemia. I'm just wondering whether you think there's any validity to this and, and how low you would accept that the uh, arterial saturations to be. Look, um, our target, um, the evidence for that is limited. Um, we do believe in reducing the FiO2. And instead of targeting a saturation of 95%, we are accepting target saturations down as low as 90. 
Uh, the important part of the trial is you choose what saturation you want and you defend that saturation. Because once you've, let's say, you've turned your FI2 till the saturation's down to 92, um, and the patient desaturates from 92, say down to 90, then uh, that you don't say, oh, well, that's permissive hypoxia, that's fine. In fact, what that reduction in saturation means is that the lung has collapsed and needs re-recruiting. So we choose to defend it, not because the oxygen target itself is important, but because the oxygen is our, the oxygenation on a constant FiO2 is our surrogate for collapse that might happen during the day or with disconnectioning or suctioning or something like that. We want to defend that saturation to bring it up. So we're not targeting high saturations. Uh, so we are, in a sense, reducing the, uh, the FiO2 but we're not specifically targeting permissive um, hypoxia in, in FARLAP because the evidence for it is fairly split. Early on in the interview, you, you referred to the, the issue of protecting the lung at the expense of defending what we would normally see as normal range targets um, for ventilation. And Correct. this raises two issues, I guess. Uh, one is um, uh, ECMO and where that fits in, and the other is that of uh, oscillatory ventilation. Yes. Um, in, when we first started ventilating uh, patients, we just saw the lungs as a barrier to normal blood gases, and we would do make the ventilator do whatever it took to get the PO2 normal and the PCO2 normal and the pH normal. Clearly, we're not doing that anymore, and we are um, much more focused on lung injury prevention and maximum lung health, because that's what's important to survival, not the actual um, PO2 and PCO2 and pH. So um, we are, of course, therefore, um, targeting lower saturations and higher um, PO2s and low, P and low pHs. So um, where do we go with... Uh, we would call those rescue therapies where our standard treatment doesn't work. Um, if somebody's, despite um, high levels of oxygen and optimal peak, their, their um, saturation is in the uh, below our zone, and the most common acceptable zone is saturation of 88, then we would apply adjunctive therapies. Nitric oxide, uh, or nebulised prostacycline would be a first one. And then, of course, our other two rescues that might be used are oscillation and ECMO. Now, um, oscillation um, is a lung recruiting strategy. So does it have added benefit after you've already maximised your recruitment with FARLAP? Um, we're uncertain about that. We don't say you shouldn't try it, but I'm not sure it's going to have much added benefit. And, of course, the recent oscillation trial has, in Canada has been stopped early. And nobody knows why at this stage. Might be. Um, and one of the possibilities is that it wasn't beneficial. So um, we're not particularly pushing um, uh, oscillation, partly because we're uncertain that it's going to have added benefit beyond uh, the maximum recruitment that we hope we've already had using a staircase recruitment manoeuvre. And uh, I guess there's also that uncertainty about that trial outcome at this stage. However, um, if somebody is profoundly desaturated despite 100% oxygen and maximum recruitment and PEEP, um, saturation in the, uh, say, 
mid-80s or lower, then we would say that person, um, particularly if they've got multi-organ failure, as is common, that person is at risk of, um, of organ damage due to hypoxia, and they're also at risk because they're very unstable. You can't just turn the FiO2 up or turn the beep up anymore to improve their oxygenation if they become suddenly unwell. So we would consider ECMO in that very severe subset. Um, again, having said that, um, in the trials we've done so far, that hasn't arisen. But of course, it did arise a lot during the flu epidemic, and we get patients like that, then we would put them on um, uh, ECMO, as we did in when they arrived, after they were um, failed to get a good response to a, a staircase recruitment manoeuvre. David, can I throw you some, uh, some things that have come up in the literature just recently and get a, a brief response from you? And those are yes. beta agonists, paralysis, uh, keeping them dry, and steroids. What are the place of these strategies? Yes. Um, beta agonists, um, we're not using or advocating, and I think they are a fraught uh, um, with hazard in the intensive care unit. They paralyse circulatory responses to, uh, to blood loss and, and other... Uh, and um, and uh, or tamponade. So um, we're not. I don't perceive any value to uh, to beta agonists in this condition at this stage. The second one was paralysis. Yes. Um, look, um, that was against what most of us thought. We all believe that uh, keeping the patient's muscles active is far better for their muscle wasting and their long-term outcome, although that 24 hours of transient paralysis didn't find, um, didn't find any problems with that. And certainly it allows you to have more stability in lung recruitment. When we designed this trial, we didn't have paralysis included in it. Um, if patients, but, um, so we're not going to routinely use it, but, you know, um, it does make sense to have somebody uh, transiently paralysed to allow good recruitment and lung stability rather than having a patient's own spontaneous respiratory efforts um, potentially uh, reduce the um, degree of recruitment. So um, we don't advocate it. We're not going to routinely use it, but um, we're not going to disallow it. Um, the, keeping patients dry, I think the, um, one of the biggest problems with um, gas exchange in the lung is excessive fluid. And... Um, it happens by accident rather than intent in a lot of patients. In the first 24 hours, most patients need a positive fluid balance for their resuscitation. After that, they have an obligatory fluid input due to nutrition, uh, antibiotics, and various infusions. And commonly, their input will exceed um, three litres a day. And commonly, their spontaneous or natural urine output will be um, between one and two litres a day, let's say one and a half. So it's very common to have a positive fluid balance um, after the first day, which wasn't deemed clinically necessary um, of between one and two litres uh, for a day, per day for a number of days. And these patients finish up with swollen ankles, swollen um, hands and elbows and, and uh, edema on the back and, um, and probably edema in their other body parts, including their organs and lungs. And every single study that's looked at fluid um, 
restriction in ARDS has found a, uh, a better gas exchange and a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation. And of course, uh, there has been a, a trend towards survival improvement when you add these studies together or look at the ARDSNET study. So um, we believe in uh, a careful maintenance of an even fluid balance unless it's specifically deemed that a, after the first day, that a positive fluid balance um, or a negative one is clinically required. We know that the ARDS lung has got capillary leak due to um, alveolar, due to capillary injury, and we know that, that um, those lungs are very sensitive to changes in capillary pressure. They leak more fluid when the uh, capillary pressure goes up, and so they're going to be sensitive to fluid overload, and we know that has a direct effect on gas exchange. So we're very much wanting a restrictive fluid policy um, in both treatment and control groups um, of this uh, with the FARLAP study. Steroids, yes. Uh, well, you know, the early work by Maduri showed a steroid benefit and the um, later steroid studies have shown no benefit um, and we're not... Uh, we still have anecdotal experience of steroid benefit, but. Um, when we can't base our practice on anecdotes and failed uh, trials, so we are not advocating the use of steroids uh, in this study. Finally, David, where do you see the future of uh, research into ARDS management? Oh, look, that's a tough question. I mean, one of the biggest problems we face is proving anything, because as the control group mortality goes down, the um, the... Um, the trial size needed to be done uh, gets to be completely impractical. Um, the common trial size now needed for a mortality benefit is often um, over 1,000 patients and maybe 2,000 patients uh, if the control group mortality is in the low 30s. And that is just impractical, too expensive. And, of course, as we uh, treat patients better, we're getting less and less ARDS. So we're now looking for different ways of measuring benefit. Uh, one is um, the ventilator-free days. So uh, less time on the ventilator, less hospital, less ICU stay. It's not a very good surrogate for mortality, but um, if you can't do mortality studies, it's not a bad one. The other um, uh, thing which is becoming increasingly important is not just dead or alive, but quality of survival. So quality of survival at six or nine months is going to become a very important um, uh, uh, outcome parameter, possibly more important than survival, and that may also give us a better chance of showing um, a you know, significant benefit from a ventilatory strategy by not needing so many patient numbers. But, um, and of course then there's maybe we do cluster randomization of hospitals, so every ARDS patient in a hospital gets a treatment strategy rather than having to get individual consent. There's the three things being um, proposed to get around the biggest problem we face, which is how do you get sufficient numbers to uh, conduct a trial. As to what we'll be trialling, well, um, it's interesting that um, we are very much um, targeting um, lung mechanics and ventilatory strategy rather than any um, chemical treatments, and that's where most of the success has been like beta blockers or steroids or um, uh, cytokine-affecting agents. So um, 
And I think uh, we obviously believe that the open lung strategy is going to be an important one, and we hope this trial will um, show a benefit, whereas none of the other open lung trials have really shown one. So um, that's where I think most people's focus is going to be, at least in the short term. David, it's been a privilege talking to you. Thank you for, uh, for giving us this uh, wonderful insight into the management of ARDS. Thanks for your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.